Hello, my name's Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, I'll take a look at the new business class product revealed by American Airlines last week, while Tom talks about why he was recording last week's podcast from Dubai. Joe will dive into Avello Airlines and I'll recount my business class experience with Emirates. Finally, I'll take a look at the air cargo market and whether demand has begun to falter. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And Joe. Tell me about American Airlines. (laughs) (laughs) So we knew American Airlines was going to be doing something a bit different. Um, You know, the first class is kind of on its way out, um, which means they need a better business class product. Well, last week we got the full reveal of what it's going to look like. Um, But we're going to have to wait for it because it's going to be initially installed on its incoming Airbus A321 XLRs and its Boeing 787-9s that are coming from 2024. So this isn't something you can fly in tomorrow, But, uh, you know, it is coming and it looks pretty good. So um, let's have a look. It's calling the product a flagship suite um, and it includes a privacy door, chaise lounge lounge seating. I'm never sure how that's pronounced. Um, Increased personal storage. Um, It does look very nice. And actually, they've kind of gone for something fairly similar to the JetBlue um, Mint suite layout on the A321, um, where they've chosen to have the head closer to the window than the aisle. I always find that an interesting one to see which way the airline goes, because obviously, if you like cloud gazing, you want your head in the aisle so you can look out the window. But that also means anyone going up and down the aisle might disturb you if you're sleeping. So, you know, if you want more privacy and more personal space, I guess you get that feeling with your head by the window. Um, So no door. It has got a door. Yeah, it's got a privacy door. It's um, full height. Um, JetBlue's, I think, is also full height. And it looks, yeah, like I say, the the trim's all kind of brown wood and and gold around the big IFE screen. Um, It all looks very nice. It looks as if they're going to have wireless charging, which is a big tick from me. Love a bit of wireless charging when it works. Um, (laughs) And uh, there's an iPad in the photo as well. So whether there's going to be like an iPad screen for the IFE for when you're lying down because you can't see the, the big screen quite as well, I don't know. Or whether that's just staging for the photographs no clue um overall it looks good um they're also going to be as i said putting this on the 787 dreamliner and they're going to be retrofitting some of the 777 300 ers with the same product but again only from 2024 onwards so nothing new very soon on the wide body obviously it's in a one-to-one layout what we've come to expect from a decent business class um on these actually the heads of the window passengers are nearest the aisles so you do get a lovely view out the window which i'm pleased to see um there's a lovely um, kind of two-position tray table that you can either push back by the screen to have more space or you can pull towards you for working and dining. There's also a little flip-down bistro table that's by the door. Um, and I think that's a really nice touch if you don't want any of the big tray tables out, but you still need somewhere to put your coffee or your wine. Um, that's going to be really good when you're in bed mode. Um Also in the release was a brand new premium economy product. Nothing to write home about here, really. I mean, it looks decent enough. It's got a fairly big recline. I think they said something about 10 inches. Um, And you've obviously got more leg room as well. Um, They've also got these kind of winged headrests. 
so that you feel like you've got a bit of privacy, even though it's just like a tiny little thing that stops you seeing the person next to you. Um, but interestingly, is the amount of seats that are going to be put on the fleet from 2024 onwards. So on the 7879, there's going to be 51 flagship suites, 32 premium economy seats. And on the A321 XLRs, there'll be 20 flagship suites and 12 premium economy. Um, that means that by 2026, the amount of premium seating on American's long haul fleet will grow by more than 45%. So they're making a real big bet on um, premium flyers doing lots of flying and earning them lots of money in the future here. Um, and one more thing I just wanted to mention, and I have to give an absolute tip of the hat to um, my friend Johnny over at the designer for giving us the heads up on this one. On the 7879 renders, in the very front row, there is a different coloured trim and a different coloured door. Um, now, the issue with the very front row of a cabin that has this sort of seat, this angled seat product, is the front row has some kind of vacant space, if you like. JetBlue used that to produce um, what we now know as the Mint Studio. So you've got your seat and then you've got that extra kind of triangular bit of space that they've turned into a, a kind of extra seat, like an Ottoman seat. Um, American looks like it's also doing this um, and that it's going to be actually selling that as a different tier due to the different coloured trims. Obviously, this is all kind of hearsay at this point. Um, I don't think it will be branded flagship first. I think that's too much because you expect a whole different soft product to go along with it as well. Um, but in terms of business plus, maybe, business and a bit more, um, or maybe just a really nice little upgrade for their most frequent flyers to a, a seat with a bit more space. I do think there's something yet to be announced in these cabins, but we'll have to wait and see. Yep. Like we like to say on this podcast, watch the space, <laughs> wait and see, and that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, somewhere a bit further away from America, um, the Middle East. And I was in Dubai last week for a conference and um, I was at the Altitude 22 conference held by Amadeus. And for those who don't know who Amadeus are, um, you know, they're not really a brand that passengers would know, but they're a brand that passengers have a lot to do with um, because Amadeus essentially provides IT solutions to airlines. So they provide booking systems scheduling systems and also they work with airports in a separate arm um, so I was at the Altitude 22 event which was um, essentially a meeting of executives from the airline industry um, there was lots of networking and there was also a lot of keynote presentations and um, a couple of the keynote presentations caught my eye so I wanted to talk about them briefly um, the first one of those was the Lufthansa's um, keynote um, because you know, we were watching through this and they were talking about um, loyalty, which is quite interesting because, as we know, they have the miles and more um, scheme, which is shared across quite a number of airlines. And um, what was really interesting was I found, you know, in November 2019, so quite a almost three years ago now, they, Lufthansa announced that it was going to be simplifying the um, the the loyalty um Ness, um, the loyalty <laughs> program. Okay. Um, they said that, and um, then the it, you know it was originally going to be launched in 2021, and then COVID came, so then they delayed it from 2021 to 2022, and then eventually they just kind of said, you know, we're taking the the completion date off of this project. So there was it was a just an open ended project. Um, 
what I found really interesting was there was kind of like a hidden in in this Lufthansa loyalty program. Um, they mentioned we will be working on a radical simplification of the miles and more program. This will be launched at the beginning of 2024. We'll issue communication this December, so I cannot share any more details, unfortunately, but we will radically simplify the status program. Now, I found this fascinating because this is almost certainly the previous um, scheme that, you know, um, got delayed and delayed. And um, I, you know, I was chatting to some other people and they didn't even notice that this was mentioned, but I was like proper fanboying, like, oh my God, this is this is huge news. Um, so it looks like, yeah, beginning of 2024, we're finally going to get this um, update. But it seems like that's not all that was coming because, you know, recently we've seen a lot of airlines um, adding sort of sustainability focused um elements to their frequent flyer programs. So Qantas, for example, launched the green tier. Um, it seems like this might be coming to Lufthansa as well, because um, the man who was, um, the gentleman who was giving the talk, um, he's the VP of Digital Channel Solutions and Commerce at Lufthansa Group, uh, Gerald Schurgel. Um, he mentioned, um, last but not least, sustainability. This will become an additional pillar of the program. The idea is that we would like to reward sustainable behavior. We have different things here in place, as you maybe have seen. We've launched the green fair in Scandinavian market, and we've also implemented a CO2 compensation possibility, including the option to buy SAF during booking. We want to reward those behaviors even more. Um, and you know, I'm, it's like a week ago now, but I think I remember seeing sort of like a mock-up of a green Miles and More card on the slide. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's definitely watch this space. And it seems like we're going to get a lot more information in December from from what uh, Mr. Shogel said. Um, the other talk that really caught my interest was a talk by Alaska Airlines and specifically their uh, managing director of revenue management, Kirsten Amrine. She was talking about how um, the Alaska Airlines had a sort of its own solution to revenue management that had been going for quite a few years and had quite a few patches to keep it going. Um, and they recently, during the pandemic, moved over to um, Amadeus's uh, revenue management solution. Um, and they were saying, actually, you know, because of the pandemic, it turned out to be the perfect time to to um, throw this in because the CARES funding meant that they had lots of employees sitting around doing nothing so they could all work on the project. And it also meant um, because, you know, there were no flight bookings and no flights happening, um, they had quite a phased plan to um, to implement this um, changeover, which would have involved um, people from Amadeus coming over to Canada. And um, instead, you know, they were able to spread it out a lot more while also keeping it a lot shorter. So because the people from Amadeus couldn't fly over to Canada, they didn't have, say, like a week to fit everything in. So they were able to space out um, getting to know the program a lot more. Um, and then because there was nothing really happening in terms of bookings and flying, uh, instead of rolling it out bit by bit, they just thought, you know what, we're just going to switch the system over in one go. And um, that worked quite well for them. But that's not really what really interests me. What did really interest me um, was that Alaska Airlines has this um, new revenue rebook scheme. And they talked a bit about what this is and how it works. And it actually, you know, it it makes a lot of sense when when you hear it. So the airline is basically proactively looking for volunteers to rebook onto another flight when it's really busy. Um, so um, explaining it, Amarone remarks that 
the revenue rebook product says maybe there are some people on this peak flight who don't actually need to fly on the peak flight. So you can offer them compensation vouchers to fly on your airline later and give them the option to choose to fly on another flight that's empty. Um, so it's basically a win-win-win system because it's a win for passengers who are rebooked. They get a travel voucher for their voluntary inconvenience. It's a win for passengers who would pay a premium to be on the um, overbooked primetime flight because they now have space to get on that. And it's kind of a double win for Alaska Airlines because firstly, it gets um, additional revenue from selling the remaining seats that have been vacated at a premium price. But also it's giving Alaska Airlines vouchers to the rebooked passengers. So this is kind of an incentive for them to stay with Alaska Airlines when making future bookings. and it's it's quite interesting because um she commented that you know they only turned this system on a few months ago and they're still in the process of optimizing it but even though they're still optimizing it they're going to make a few million dollars off of the program just this year um so you know that's just a few months uh, maybe half a year of a non-optimized system so you've got to think you know a whole year once they've fully optimized this is going to do um quite well for the airline and i think you know i think it's just a great thing in general because i from a passenger point of view, you know, it lets people get on flights um, when they might have already been um, booked. It kind of deals with the overbooking problem that some airlines have. And, you know, I if I was flying and not like urgent to get where I was going, I'd happily take a, a travel voucher to travel at an off-peak time. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like a really good scheme. And uh, yeah. I'd be interested to see it rolling out with more airlines as well, because I'm quite happy to take a, a free <laughs> voucher to change yeah. my flight time as long as, yeah. uh, you know, it's not too unsociable. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. very interesting to see how they're coping with that. Um, so something I was quite interested in, um, sticking in the Americas, actually, I had a lovely conversation with Andrew Levy, who is, of course, now the CEO of Avello Airlines. And I just wanted to kind of feed back on some of the key takeaways from that chat. Um, I could have talked to him all night. He was so interesting. It was very late here and I was so tired. But, uh, you know, it, it was such an interesting conversation. For for those who don't know Andrew Levy, um, you know, he's been in aviation for the longest time. He started off running a little airline called ValueJet. Um, he also, um, he was CEO of Allegiant for a really long time. He was chief financial officer at United Airlines most recently. Um, But just before the pandemic, he left United with a view to setting up his very own airline with his own money. Um, And this airline, of course, we know now as Avello. Um, So they launched in April 2021. It was quite interesting because they launched literally, I don't know, a week or 10 days before Breeze. And they therefore got the crown of being the first new US airline in 15 years. And I said, to him was that launch day all about beating Breeze and he admitted it was kind of a little bit to do with that because they knew they would get extra media attention from being the first new airline in 15 years instead of the second so uh, that was interesting to talk about but you know they haven't had the easiest start they launched as I say while Covid was still very much a thing and then this year you know when Covid started to become less of a thing they're dealing with really really high fuel prices Um, nothing that's in their control you know it's all about Putin's war and it seems very unfair. Um, And because of that, the airline's yet to turn a profit, but he's very confident that it will do so by the end of this year. Um, 
actually 16 months into their journey, which was around, I think, July, they flew their one millionth passenger. And I think that's incredible for an airline that at the time was flying just 11 Boeing 737s. Um, to have that under their belt already has got to be very um, morale boosting, at least, <laughs> even if it's not like bottom line boosting as much as they, they wanted. Um, Levy described it as being like in an American football game where you're nearly at the touchdown line, you're about to score, then all of a sudden you get a penalty flag and you're sent back to the middle field. So um, That means nothing to me. <laughs> no, not me either, really. But I kind of get the analogy. They, they, they were very close. They should have posted a profit at the end of the second mm. quarter had it not been for the doubling of the price of fuel. Um, but, you know, in general, the airline's doing everything right. They're taking care of their passengers. Despite the challenges that have happened all over this summer that we've talked about plenty of times on the podcast, um, you know, they only cancelled 1% of their flights. I think that's incredible compared with, you know, how lots of other airlines are not coping um, with all the issues that have thrown up in the post-pandemic environment. 1% of flights got cancelled. On-time performance is very, very good, something like 90% on-time um, and their load factors are pretty good. He said, you know, they were averaging like 70 up until the summer. Um, through the summer months, it was more like 80. They want to be at 85. You know, they're, they're an ultra low cost carrier. So they need those high load factors to really turn things around. Um, I was really interested to talk about how he thought about his network because it's a very odd airline when you look at it. You know, they launched in um, Hollywood Burbank Airport, which is obviously on the West Coast. Hmm. Um, you know, it's kind there. of... Yeah, it's it's kind of flying, you know, Los Angeles basically, but I not mean, yeah, the... it's 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 enough Los Angeles to be. It's not like Ontario, which I would say is is far, way out far of Los, Los Angeles. Angeles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, um, it's close in. It's got a big yeah. catchment area and it's a much more convenient airport to depart from if you're on that side of the city um, hmm. than trying to get get through, you know, LAX, which is a mega airport. Um, and from there, he connected to 11 unserved destinations. Um, no service at all. So really, you know, built up Burbank into becoming quite a, an interesting little airport. But then a month after they launched Burbank, Bank, he said, well, I'm launching my second base and it's going to be at Tweed New Haven. Um, now, Tweed New Haven is in Connecticut on the opposite side of America. I mean, why would you do that to yourself? You've got your base here and then you set up another one about as far away as you can get without leaving the country. Um, so he explained, you know, it wasn't a strategic thing. Burbank was seen as a great opportunity and it still is. And then they got this opportunity to go into New Haven and they could see that there was the same opportunity there that there was over at Burbank. You know, it was practically a dead airport, but in a really big catchment area. And everybody that lives in that area, you know, he said he realised how big the opportunity was when he had to go to New Haven to have a look at the airport because it was like two hours of driving through horrible traffic. Um, you know, and that's the journey those people living in that area have to make every time they want to fly somewhere. So, you know, it's a natural place for an airline to set up shop and it's been doing really well. Um, and actually now they've opened their third and their fourth bases, which are both in in Florida. He's seeing a huge, huge potential in Florida. Um, obviously, um, he's in Orlando, which doesn't really fit the MO of kind of picking up these unserved and underserved airports. Um, but, you know, he said at the other end of the Orlando journey, you will be at one of these little regional airports and having that lovely experience of not having to queue up for hours to get through security and stuff. So every time you're going into a big airport, you're coming out to something that's a lot smaller. 
Um, so we talked a little bit about whether he will ever connect those two sides of the coin. You know, we've got this West Coast network, this East Coast network. Would it make sense to fly Transcon and connect the two together? Well, really, no, not for him. Um, he said, you know, transcontinental is such a difficult thing to make work because every time you overfly a hub of another airline, you're off you're giving the, the passenger an opportunity to connect at a lower price. So, you know, and, and he couldn't do it on the kind of business model he's got, everything is out and back. You know, the, the planes come home every night. Everything he flies is turnaround in a day. There's no overnighting of crew. There's no hotel costs. There's no parking costs. So it would just completely mess up that business model. So for now, the two markets will operate in their own silos. Um, he said, you know, at some point, maybe they will meet in the middle with a kind of east-west flow, but it will be with other airports in the middle. He'll never do like a big, long, um, low-cost, long-haul um, in fact, he said that doesn't work. It's never going to work. And he's waiting for somebody to prove him wrong on that point. And I think he knows enough about aviation to make that call. Um, so Transcon's a no. I did ask about international. Obviously, everything he's done so far has been United States domestic focused. I think absolutely um, international is on the cards. And he said as much. It's more a question of when rather than if. And, you know, there's there's opportunities to the south, for example, from the Florida um, airports down to Mexico, the Caribbean, that sort of um, leisure travel focused route. Um, but he said there's also opportunities going north. And he's um, quite interested in Canada. I think, you know, from Tweed, New Haven, you could easily get to like Montreal, Toronto. Um, so, yeah, it will be really interesting to see how that develops in the future. Um, now, I mentioned he had 11 Boeing 737s. They're all old aircraft. They're between like 12 and 20 years old, averaging about 15 years. And he loves them. You know, he says that a 15-year-old 737NG is like a teenager. It's like, a, you know, it's got a long life ahead of it as long as it's been well maintained. Um, and he will stick, stick with that strategy while it works. But he does understand that eventually he'll get to such a size where it's not possible to keep acquiring these good, high-quality used aircraft. Um, mm. And he said, you know, a couple of well, years down exactly the line. Well, that's exactly what we were saying about Ryan. There last week, having the keeping its couple of A320s around. Yeah, exactly. And he he drew lots of analogies with Ryanair. You'd have loved some of the things he said. He's a big fan of Michael O'Leary and, and you know what he's done over here in Europe. <laughs> but so, you know, Ryanair too started with used 737s and now mm. they've got the Maxis coming in. And he said, you know, down the line, when they get to that point of the business, they will almost certainly be putting a large order in for the 737 Max. It's just not right now. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to have 12 planes within the next couple of weeks. There's The 12th is incoming right now. They should have 14 by year end. And by next summer, they'll be flying a fleet of 16. So I thought that was, you know, interesting to see how it's building. And I think as long as the, the books are balancing, you know, it's, it's going to continue growing at that sort of rate. So it's not like it will become southwest overnight, but it is on a growth trajectory, which is good to see. Um, and just to finish off, I know you spoke a little bit about loyalty there. Avello is developing a loyalty program, which I'm excited to see how they figure out. He said that, you know, the finer details are still being worked out, but it will be a points-based system rather than a frequent flyer system. And I think that makes a lot of sense for the market he serves, you know, in terms of people who might only fly once a year, you know, they can gain some points and they can get some more the next year. And eventually they'll be able to trade it in for something nice um, rather than... Kind 
kind of tiers and frequent flyers, which isn't the market he's going for at all. So, um, yeah, Avello Airlines, I'm really kind of hyped about this uh, this startup. I think they're doing a great job. And Andrew was a wonderful guy to talk to. So please do check out our YouTube channel where you can see the interview in full. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm yet to watch it, but I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it because um, the the downside of being behind the technology of it all is that I see it but can't hear it. So, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, one thing I did get to do though was last week, you know, going out to Dubai, I got to fly with Emirates, and um, I was really lucky that I got to go in business class, which was a first for me. I've not been in their business class before, other than when we've looked at it on the ground in at the air show. So I wanted to touch a little bit on that because. I was very impressed overall. Um, I was sadly, for all our listeners, I was on the Boeing 777 and not the A380. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I would say I, I've heard a lot of negativity about the business class product on the 777 because it's it's quite dated in terms of its layout. You know, you've not got direct aisle access for everyone. It's two, free, two. Um, <laughs> I was quite fortunate, actually, on both of my flights, the, um, the seat next to me was empty. Um on the flight out, you know, most of the cabin was empty, which was quite nice. Um, but I would say what what you lack in the the hard product is really made up for in the soft product on uh, Emirates. Um, you know, on the way out, like I said, there was um, it felt almost like there was a cabin crew to passenger ratio of one to two in business class because it was so um, lightly booked. Um, and you know. Um, I, when I got on the flight, um, the the crew member in, in charge of looking after me, a, a French chap called Marvin, he came up to me and said, you know, my name's Marvin. I'm looking after you on this flight. And he's like, have you flown Emirates Business Class before? So I said, uh, no, I haven't. And he's like, okay, well, um, let me show you how it works. And he showed me how the touchscreen worked, how the seat worked. Um, and all of this, which, you know, I've never had on a flight. Um, I, I feel like most of the time they just expect you to sit down and figure it out yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, it just kept coming back throughout the flight. Do you need anything? Um, can I get you another drink? The thing I found most exciting, actually, was that I got a cappuccino, uh, which is definitely a first for me on a flight. You know, I'm used to just having a filter coffee with milk. Um, you know, the food was lovely as well. Um, for a starter, we had, um, it was a carrot and ginger soup. And I'm not usually a fan of ginger, but this had just the right amount of ginger in it that it wasn't like ginger, but you could taste it was in it. And I, that was lovely. Um, the main wasn't, wasn't as amazing, but it was still tasty. It was a chicken um, with filled with ricotta and spinach um, and some mixed vegetables on the side and then for dessert I had a panna cotta because that was um, the chef was writing about it in the menu as some sort of special of the month um, and you know that was um, the, the onboard experience the other thing I must say is the departure experience at Dubai for premium passengers because um, when you're flying business with um, Emirates unless you've got the really cheapest fares they actually include a chauffeur transfer at each end of your journey so um you know, a black car picked me up from the hotel and drove me to departures at Terminal 3 in Dubai. And then what I found really interesting was as we were driving, there was a lane and it said first and business only, and it kind of went off to the right. Um, and then it entered this little courtyard, which was a separate entrance to the terminal just for first and business class passengers. And 
kind of a bit like the first wing at um, Heathrow Terminal 5. They kind of have a business and first class wing at um, for um, passengers in Dubai. So um, there was a whole separate area that was just had business class and first class check-in facilities. Um, and then I went to um, through immigration that was just for business and first class. And because of that, there was no queue. Um, and they only had one um, security lane open, but also because it was only for business and first class passengers, there was no queue for that. Um, the only thing I would say is because of the positioning of it, it then dumps you into the terminal quite far from anywhere you really need to be. So um, I then walked over to the first class lounge because um, Emirates very kindly invited me in there to check it out. And um, that must have been a good sort of 15, 20 minute walk. Um, but, you know, I have nothing against a little walk before a flight. Um, and in the lounge as well, you know, um, I was in one of the uh, slightly older lounges, I think in Concourse C. Um, I had the I don't know without checking, but I got the impression that that was maybe the first bit they built and they've added on the rest. Um, and, you know, it, it, it did feel a little bit um, smaller and um, not not as new as what I would have expected if I'd been in the main first class lounge. But, you know, in terms of the services and the what was offered, um, I sat down at a table and straight away somebody came over and um, Brought um, uh, showed me how the menu was. Can I take a drink? Um, there's some bread and butter, um, and then I had the most amazing steak that I've had in my life. I think um, <laughs> it was really, really good. Um, and um, you know, it's just um, had a dessert as well. And you know, I was in there for about three hours, and the time just flew by. Even then, because it was just so um, you know, taking care of me and. Um, I used the shower. I didn't really need a shower, but I used the shower for the sake of using it so that I could write it in the, the review, which is coming next week. So, you know, I'm, ad I'm, I'm very aware that I'm just going on about um, how much I enjoyed flying at this point. So, you know, <laughs> if you want to hear a little bit more, just keep an eye out for my flight review and my lounge review that's coming up in the next week or so on simpleflying.com. Nice. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Back to me in the studio. <laughs> 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 oh, so good. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to take a look. It, it, this is probably very boring unless you like stories about cargo, okay, um, which asleep. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, I think we've seen some really interesting moves in the cargo market over the last two years, really. Um, you know, the belly hole capacity disappeared overnight as a result of airlines grounding their passenger fleets and compounding that demand. There was the increase in people using e-commerce for their shopping um, because the retail stores were closed in a lot of places um, or people were choosing or made to stay at home. So we were completely reliant on stuff being delivered to our doors. So all of this caused unprecedented spikes in the cost of air cargo, which encouraged more carriers to enter the market or to expand their capacity. Or as we saw with the lovely, um, I think it was Carsten's four coin term, Parita. Parita, <laughs> yes, that was that was Carsten. I love that word. Um, so I hated it at the start, but now I'm just, I'm on board now. So this was where passenger airlines were ripping out their seats of their unused passenger aircraft and filling them with boxes to meet I mean, the high demand. At the start, they weren't even doing that. At the very start, they were just putting boxes on seats. Yeah, I remember um, startups actually emerging that had designed specific bags to go on seats of yeah. aircraft. That's how big this market was, but only temporarily. Um, yeah. You know, it kind of, the, the cargo rates have stayed really high um, because of the there's more demand than supply, basically. That's, that's how markets work. We know that. Mm. Um, but, you know, I've been getting some signals lately that maybe the bottom's starting to drop out. 
about and I wanted to have a bit of a dig into it. So this is my research and I'm really keen to share it. So I apologise if I'm putting you to sleep right now. Okay, um, I I'll think... just go make a coffee and come back. <laughs> <laughs> Important to frame this is that it's now less than 90 days till Christmas. 89 the day we're recording this, maybe 87 by the time you listen. So I'm sorry about that. I know people don't like the C word being mentioned in September, but it's happening. I, <laughs> I put um... my Christmas tree up at the end of October. <laughs> <laughs> this is generally the peak season for global air um, cargo. Uh, so they should be ramping up cargo carriers, really, in anticipation of the demand. But several actually seem to be pulling back as if they're anticipating a drop in demand. So I had a look at a database called Zenita, which tracks um, air freight markets. And it showed that the market contracted by 5% year on year in August um, and is down 4% compared to pre-pandemic levels. So that's not a great sign. More importantly, though, the shipping rates globally are still on the going down um, decline. That's the word. Um, this has been a trend since late March. But to put this in context, um, global rates peaked at 156% above standard 2019 levels in January this year. Um, they're currently down to 113% above 29 levels. So they're still really high. They're just not as high. Um, so let's have a look at the airlines that we think have been pulling back. For example, Amazon has dialed back its expansion to some degree. It's still expanding, which is good, but it's expanding much more slowly. So up until March, it's its flight activity had been growing at a rate of around 15% month on month. But between March and August, it averaged less than 4% monthly growth. So it's not really pulling back. It's just slowing its acceleration, if you like. Um, but, you know, it's important to note that as a company, it lost a massive $3.8 billion in the first quarter of this year. It actually shut down or stopped building a number of rare warehouses. Um, in fact, 44, which is a lot because their warehouses are big. Um, it was 2.5 times more than had been previously earmarked for closure. Um, and now it's apparently rationalising its air network because it's got fewer warehouses to supply. So, um, you know, Know, not disastrous, but certainly a, a pullback in some respects. FedEx Express, this was the real kind of red flag for me. It's the world's largest air cargo airline, and it's really been feeling the pinch. So its September trading update showed its first quarter earnings would do well below expectations. It was going to have a revenue shortfall of around $500 million, um, and it's been reducing flight frequencies, and it actually admitted to grounding some of its aircraft in order to save money, although they wouldn't tell me how many aircraft would be parked or for how long. Um, DHL, another major air cargo operator, said that demand had softened in mid-August, but that volumes were stable following a really significant drop in July. So it's kind of gone down over the summer and then levelled out. Mm. Um, but it also noted, and I think this is another important thing to throw into the mixing pot, is that improvements in operations of sea freight have also contributed to lower demand for air cargo. Um, now, obviously, is sea that freight... Because can now use the Sawyer's Canal. <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> that created an enormous backlog that took months and months mm. to free up again. Um, but they've also, you know, just because of the lack of staff and, you know, just the pandemic impacts, the same as every other industry in the world, you know, it's um, taken a little while to unclog that 
drain. And I think it is unclogged now. So sea freight is becoming a potential um, resource for people that are shipping stuff. It takes longer, but it's an awful lot cheaper. So that will take away some of the um, capacity for the air cargo operators. Um, UPS, on the other hand, has no doubt about the air freight industry. Um, it tapped up Boeing for another 8767 freighters in August. Um, so it's going to have a fleet of 108 Boeing 767 freighters. So clearly putting its money where its mouth is. And it's not the only one um, because there are other operators looking to get in on the action. So, for example, global shipping giant Maersk is launching its own air cargo operation. It's flying leased Boeing 767s to complement its immense sea freight operation. Vietnam is also eyeing the start of its very first freight airline. It's called IP Air Cargo or IPP Air Cargo. And India has a new cargo operator called Quickjet that's anticipating its first flights before the end of the year. These are just a few examples of where air cargo is still growing. So, um, I mean, I guess in conclusion, the long-term prospects still remain to be seen and we have to put things in perspective. Rates are slackening and demand is beginning to wane, but still, compared with pre-pandemic, air cargo is in an incredibly healthy position. There's still a very difficult fourth quarter to get through, um, not least um, the fact that we're all dealing with a recession or inflation or something, I don't know. Apparently, a pound is now worth a dollar. So my trip to America at the end of October was really badly timed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, the ongoing massive high price of jet fuel. Um, it's all stuff that they're going to have to weather to get through the winter. But hopefully Christmas will continue to be a positive um, moment for the air cargo industry. And th there you go. You can wake up again now, Tom. <laughs> OK. Oh, oh, I'm back. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for on today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.